Well, the sermon today is titled Love-Hate Relationship, which is um, kind of a strange way to put uh, a, a title in the middle of a series called uh, Loving Us the Children of God. How's that, a love-hate relationship? Well, John's going to show us. Uh, this entire summer, we've been seeing what God's Word is teaching us about loving as the children of God. And I must confess that I couldn't remember all five uh, of the last weeks and, and exactly what each sermon was about, so I went to the website, uh, the very same website that you're probably watching this on right now. Uh, so maybe after the service, uh, you could stay on that website and explore a little more all the things that it has to offer. Uh, it's a great resource. Um, one of the things that I did the other morning, and I thought, boy, this is going to have to be a, a, an added element to my quiet time, is I, I went to one of the, the past services, and I, I started listening to the worship team. And I let them lead me in worship. And it, it just came on me to do it, and it was a wonderful experience. So that might be one way you could use it. Or if you really want to dig deep into theology, click the children's ministry link. There's, there's nine videos, I think it is. Last I looked, there were nine. Maybe there's more now. And they're rich. I mean, these, these people get to the point, and they don't mess around. Uh, I guess the, the attention span of the, the child is maybe greater than mine, but they know they've only got a little bit of time to teach our children, so they teach them quickly, and they teach them well. And they're not lessons that are reserved just for children. So check that out. You might really like it. Uh, but back to the titles that I did see for the last five weeks. You know, five weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians uh, 13. Some call it the love chapter. Uh, the title was Building Up Love. And we looked at loving like Christ builds up and unifies his body, displaying the reality of God's kingdom. And then the week after was Psalm 103. It was fitting for Father's Day. Uh, fatherly compassion for the generations. Knowing God's grace, or excuse me, knowing God's compassion enables us to wholeheartedly love him and those in need of his grace. And then three weeks ago, John 13, uh, verses 31 through 38, titled The Glory of Love. Loving one another in Christ's church glorifies God. And then the loving the enemies passage from Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, the perfect love of enemies. Loving our enemies displays the power and perfecting work of God's grace. And then last week we had a, a, a guest teacher, uh, R.W. Mackey, and if you saw it, you were really blessed. He did a most excellent job. And you, you might think that his, his sermon on um, really the, the valuable vessels that are considered holy and while well, he talked about different vessels in, in the, uh, the tent of meeting or uh, tabernacle he, he made it clear that he was talking about us and it was a good message maybe not directly into the loving as the children of God series but if you notice, like I did, the very first thing he did when he was introducing himself was he talked about, well, 
I'm already a fan of the Swansons because he, he knew them. But then very quickly, right after that, he said, and I've come to know that I like you guys too. And he didn't say it like some car salesman who was about to give you a pitch and he needed to get close to you before he could deliver that pitch. He said it because he was being honest and he felt the love. And he reciprocated and he gave the love. So love was not absent from that sermon in any way. Well, that's where we've been. And today we'll look at 1 John uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. And like I say, it's a love-hate relationship. And the text speaks to righteousness, uh, speaks to righteous love being hated by a jealous world. Uh, read along with me. And we used to do this when we gathered. We'd stand as we read. And I suggest maybe if you can, or if you're willing, that you would do that now. But I'll read uh, 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. And it says, By this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not, abide, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Let me pray. Lord, I pray the beauty of the word. Found by some as a rock in a field, uh, a rock that becomes a precious gemstone, polished by the spirit, polished so bright as to illuminate your very words, O Lord. I pray that your spirit has and will continue to sharpen my mind to your thoughts and loosen my tongue to speak for your words and soften my heart to deeply know your love. Remove any error I would utter, and should one come out, I ask that you not let it land on listeners' ears. You are a faithful God with an unstoppable gospel. Have your gospel abide in this teaching as Christ abides in your children. Amen. So the Apostle John is very direct and packs a heavy message in a small space. God through John isn't trying to be soft. He uses words that are difficult for some. Words that our younger audience are even instructed are bad and should avoid using. Words that can be very, very hurtful. Words like hate and murder. But he also uses excellent words. Words that can be uplifting and caring. Words like love and righteous. God uses these in contrast to draw a clear, distinct, defining line between his children and the children of the world. I'll repeat what I had said earlier. 
Christ's love transforms our hating, jealous nature to a loving, righteous heart. Again, Christ's love transforms our hating, jealous nature to a loving, righteous heart. We have hating and jealousy transformed to loving and righteousness. You see, righteous love is hated by a jealous world. The world doesn't understand it. The world can see it, recognize it, desire it, but left on its own devices, can't realize it. And for that, it is jealous. It is much like how the gospel is foolishness to the world. It is not for all to own and, believe, or own and live. It is true, Christ died once for all, but not all believe. So too is the matter of righteous love. Only Christ makes love righteous. Without Christ, it might be a very, very good, but not to the level of righteous love. It is, a, it is simply a love that is unattainable without a saving faith in Christ. My outline for this passage is broken up into um, pairs, three pairs of two for uh, uh, six verses. And we're going to start with verses 10 and 11. And we see that God's children love one another and practice righteousness. John Piper once said in a sermon around the same passage that the gospel is incomplete unless it includes both doctrine and ethics. I think the point he's trying to make is that the gospel is not an authoritative statement that you can chisel in stone and put for all to see and then they're suddenly saved because they chant it a big number of times. That would be the doctrine by itself. And if it were only that, it would seem lifeless. There wouldn't be any richness for the person to know. But the gospel insists on change in people. John 3.16 has the requirement that whoever believes in him, whoever believes, it's an action. It's not just hearing it. You have to believe it. Required participation. There is an evidential outwardly behavioral change in the believing Christian. How a person responds to the gospel is what Piper simply, almost humbly, calls ethics. Ethics in the context of the Bible are the behaviors of those who respond to the gospel. John, not Piper, but the apostle, uh, made sure he covered the doctrine back on chapter one verses 5 and seven, through 7. And let me read that. You only have to turn back about a page to get there. It says, This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. There's the doctrine. John laid it out before he starts talking about the ethics. But now he's ready to work almost entirely on ethics. 
And that's what we're looking at in these passages. Verse 10 is the context for what follows. So read it again. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Let me break this down in really small chunks. By this, by what? Two things, and I'll get to them in a moment. It is evident. John is saying there is something tangible that is evidence of the statement. Evidence of what? Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? That's what we're looking for the evidence to point to. You have to hold on to this contrast of God and devil because John's going to use it uh, to explain deeper what he means. But the evidence is going to point to which group people fit into. Children of God or children of the devil? And then whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Well, there's the first evidence. Why wouldn't he just say those who practice righteousness are of God? Why the double negative? I think it's to land those who don't in the other camp. He's not leaving a third neutral ground. He's not saying those are the children of God and then those who haven't figured it out yet and then those of the devil, you are there or there. If you're left-handed, you're there or there. And take special note of the word practice. It goes back to that ethics argument. Whoever does not practice righteousness. It is not enough to be declared righteous, but we must practice it. Our choices must be ones of righteousness. So the first of two by this things that are evident is living righteously. And then he goes, nor is the one who does not love his brother. The second by this, then, is loving your brother. John uses verse 11 to emphasize this one. For you have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. It isn't that John doesn't expand and describe his thoughts on this love. In fact, he does. Very much. Next week, different sermon. Be sure to come back. You're going to love it, literally. But what he does do in the next verse is look at love by contrasting it to hate. Remember that John isn't talking about love and hate as nebulous concepts floating about, like something you can't see, a COVID virus that, boy, if you pass through it, you just might get it, and somebody else passing through it might not. No, love and hate are human behaviors. They're actions. Something that can be seen and felt. And the motivations behind which of the two love or hate that we align ourselves with. So with that in mind, let's look at verse 13 or 12 and 13, which tell us that Cain jealously murdered Abel over righteousness, and the world carries that gene. I have to resist the temptation to, to dive fully into Cain and Abel's story in Genesis chapter 4, or we'd probably be here well past lunch. So go ahead and turn to Genesis 4, and I hope you had a good breakfast. 
Genesis 4, um, verses 1 through 8. And I'm going to try to emphasize verse 5. So starting with verse 1 in chapter 4 of Genesis. Now Adam knew his wife, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother, Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. This is part of that verse 5. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is, to, is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8, Cain spoke to, his Ab- spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. So verse 5, Cain was angry, an anger that led him to kill his younger brother. Have you ever seen that or done it? I don't mean kill your younger brother, but have you ever been where you see someone get angry over one thing and lash out at the nearest person who had nothing to do with what upset the first person? So what was the source of Cain's anger? The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, and for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Cain was jealous that God showed more regard for Abel's sacrifice. Cain was upset at God's choice, but he was angry with Abel, misdirected. So let's turn back to John 1. I shouldn't have turned away because I struggle to find it sometimes. Here we go. What does John say, or why does John say Cain murdered Abel? Well, because his own deeds, Cain's, were evil, and his brothers, Abel, were righteous. Was Cain's sacrifice evil? I'd say not. Objects themselves are not evil. The evil was Cain's jealous hatred. God even warned Cain not to succumb to anger with words like sin is crouching at your door and you must rule over it. And I don't know what the real timeline was between verse 7 and 8, but it was only one verse in the Bible. He went from the warning to murdering his brother. No words in between. And Matthew 5, 21 and 22, I'll turn there, you don't have to also speaks about this anger. You have heard it said, or you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother 
will be liable to judgment. It's the same lesson, that the anger and murder are so closely related that Jesus on the, in his Sermon on the Mount decided to consider them the same thing. In our first John passage, John makes these connections between evil anger or jealousy so that we can understand his next words. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Like Cain hated Abel out of jealousy of the righteousness that God declared on his children, the world, the children of the devil, will hate the church. I told you I would teach straightforward message from God's word. Verse 13 again. Do not be surprised, brother, that the world hates you. I wouldn't want to end any sermon on that note. And thank goodness that isn't where John ended his thoughts or his paragraph. He ends the stream with verse 14 and 15. And it contains the thought that love is the mark of salvation and hate is the mark of destruction. So who are we? Lovers or haters? Righteous or murderous? The beginning of verse 14 states that we know, and John is talking to his brothers, brothers in Christ, we know that we have passed out of death into life. And how do we know this? Because we love our brothers. In other words, we have been marked. There is a sign for all, including ourselves, to see. It is the mark of brotherly love. In contrast, there is another mark for all to see. Whoever does not love abides in death. Verse 15 says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Take a hard look at those two statements about abiding life written in the negative. Does not love abides in death? And no murderer has eternal life abiding in him? Of the two abidings, I'm most impressed by the latter because it is less confusing as to what abiding is really addressing. It says abiding in him. So with the help of verse 14, from that we know we have passed out of death into life, we can logically progress that we do have life abiding in us. The in us statement is so important because it, is, it addresses how all this comes about. It is God living in us, Christ abiding in us, the Holy Spirit indwelling in us that brings about the mark of brotherly love. Impossible without it. So that's the text, and how do we apply it? Aren't there really two types of people that are given application? Children of the devil and children of God. Let me give time to both. Children of the devil first. My heart goes out to them. I mean, I have real compassion. It was hard stuff to read when I think about unsaved friends. They're children of the devil. But it's a dire situation, but not a hopeless one. The position or state of a person of the world 
is that they are still loved by God. It is the setup in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That's the point. Long before salvation, he's loving the world. The love that the world is currently jealous of can be realized by believing on Christ. Except Christ, not one child of God began that way. Not one. We were children of the world, of the devil, swayed by the evidence, convicted and convinced by the spirit that Christ did die for our sins and rose to a position of dominion. With saving belief and repentance from our former ways, we were indwelled by the Holy Spirit, born of a new nature, born as children of God, adopted into his family. And the most recent conversion, right down to a millisecond ago, which I'm sure there was one a millisecond ago, and there will be another one a millisecond from now, and there will continue to be conversions right to the time of Christ's return. It's out there for the taking. It's out there, and the, the chore, the job, is to believe. The application for the child of the world is to stop longing for righteous love and accept that which is offered. If you consider yourself at odds with God and more aligned with the world, talk to somebody showing you evidence of love that you don't know, of that righteous love. That somebody could be a, I don't know, a person from Redemption Hill. It could be a neighbor or a loved one. It could be a believing parent righteously loving a lost child. Conversely, it could be a child righteously loving a parent who due to whatever hardship has distanced themselves from that righteous love. If you are marked by the world and want to wear the mark of righteous love, my advice to you is this, be humble, seek understanding, be persistent. Satan will desire to keep you and he will fight your earliest thoughts of divorcing him. But Christ is far, far stronger. And if you ask him, he will fight that weaker adversary at every step of the way. So what about the child of God? What's his application? Well, before I go into the one from the text, I'd like to go into the application from what I just said. Speaking of the child of the devil. I think the child of God's chore is to work his way through that last application. Be there for the one that John defines as hating you. Think back to the sermon that Tim was speaking about, the perfect love of enemies. Be ready with word, with prayer, with testimony, and you also be humble. You also look for help from Christ because he abundantly offers it. So that was the indirect application. Now I'll step into the application from the very text to the children of God. 
What is this passage directly telling us? It is in verses 10, 11, and 14. Love your brother and practice righteousness. Practically speaking, I see it all over the church. I see prayer. I see meals being made for others. I see the church building and grounds being cared for. I see worship teams, ushers, staff, and others all caring for the body, preparing and allowing them a place to praise God. I see teachers caring for our young minds. I see hands holding our littlest ones in the nursery. I see phone calls being made to encourage one another. There are too many acts of loving brothers to completely list here. But here is the thing. They are being done righteously. They are being done as children of God. Without the righteousness that came from the cleansing blood of Christ, they'd be different. All those acts of service would be good things. But the world does good things. How is it different? The world does put effort. Unfortunately, on their own self-reliant effort, but it puts effort into doing good things. Here's an example of one of those good things. And Sarah was kind enough to post this on the website for me. It's a great read. It's a copy of Rudyard Kipling's poem, If. I encourage you to read it when you get a chance, not necessarily now. It's full of advice from a father to a son in a series of if statements. It has humility, perseverance, virtue, ethics. My purpose for showing you this is that the world can appreciate and do very good things. I so badly wanted to know that Kipling was a Christian. And he was writing from the point, that point of view back in 1910 when he wrote If. Sadly, he probably wasn't. My research convinced me otherwise. He was lacking the brotherly love that I'm talking about. But God knows Kipling's heart. I won't judge whether he was or wasn't a Christian. I've got to leave that up to the Lord. And this is coming from one of his biggest fans. I love what this man has to say. I, I can pray that he was a brother. Uh, there's a difference between the good acts of the world and the act of loving brothers or acts of the service by the church. That difference is when the acts are done in true righteousness. That, that difference uh, of true righteousness is only possible in Christ's abiding. Christ transforms God's children's hearts. Only he makes us righteous by God's standards. And only by that can the acts of service become righteous acts of love. I would challenge you to slow down now and then and witness what is happening. How many times you are going to do, or how many times you are doing what otherwise doesn't seem to make sense? And give Christ the effort when you see it happening. Praise him. Ask yourselves if you have ever gotten in the way of loving your brother. And if so, repent and God will be quick to forgive. Ask yourself if you ever get in the way of another loving child of a God. Are you ever jealous 
over someone whose attention you want, but they are being called by God to serve another at the time? Boy, I know I have. I'm really guilty of this one. I know Linda is a just fantastic servant of God, and as she serves, sometimes I have to be put on the back shelf. I should love that back shelf because I get to watch Christ in action. But if that is you, if you're the jealous one that is demanding time that you haven't got any claim on, Christ does have a claim on, the answer is the same. Be humble, listen to the Spirit's conviction, turn and ask forgiveness. And here's a pretty cool thing. Not only will he forgive you, he will show you that allowing what he initiated to happen without the jealousy will in itself be participating in righteous love. Let's pray. Lord God, draw us close as your children. Let us see your love that we are being called to emulate. Turn the hating, jealous heart to a righteous, loving one. For those you have already done that for, we praise you and ask you to continue your sanctifying work. We praise you in all things. Amen.